Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to a very unusual live recording of The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And for those listeners who, you know, would like to imagine where we are, we're sitting in a jazz studio in Soho and we're being looked at by the very remarkable Gary Lineker. So we're, we're all feeling rather kind of glamorous. At least I'm feeling quite glamorous. You feeling glamorous? No. No, not feeling no, glamorous. Gary sorry. Lineker doesn't make me feel glamorous. Last time, I've been here before because this is where we interviewed Helen Clark. That's it. Where yeah. you were down the line. I was coming down the line, yeah. Um, but it's quite cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I don't know how we're going to keep you off the drum set. That's the only thing I'm a bit worried about. No. Yeah. Yeah, well, I didn't bring my bagpipes. You're in luck. Um, Now, I guess I reckon some of our listeners will be thinking, God, I hope they don't do the Harry stuff. Because there has been so much of it. But I think we should maybe briefly. What's your sense of what's going on with all that? I am sick to death of hearing of it. Uh, I thought it was very interesting that Happy Valley on the BBC beat ITV hands down in the ratings. I think a lot of people are getting sick of it. I said a few weeks ago that I've, I've actually generally been very sympathetic to Harry and to Meghan. I think they are. I think she has been the victim of racism and misogyny. I think he is a very troubled guy, and I think the trouble does go back to his mother's death. And I think the, the media are vile. A lot of the media are vile about them. But I think you do lose a lot of public sympathy and support when you're making 100 million quid to make books and films that, basically seem to be focused on trashing your own family. I think it's very, very difficult. Yeah, it is very difficult, isn't it? And it all seems from the outside much more calculated. I mean, it's very clearly a very, very serious PR campaign, the launch of that book, the different language editions, the interviews that he's giving the way. There's a real sense that this is somebody trying to make a big story. Yeah, on a mission. Would you read it? No, I I won't. Because? Um, Well, I find the whole thing pretty tragic. I mean, I'm, I guess... Honestly, if I'm on the spade, I'm more on the side of the King and the Prince of Wales. I, I find this very uncomfortable. I've got a lot of sympathy for Prince Harry, but basically I, I think this is very, very disturbing and sad. And yeah, I don't, I don't want to see any more of this. But the other thing that I've noticed, sort of checking on media around the world, I mean, it is global. I, lo- I looked on French, German, Italian news sites yesterday, and it was huge. This story is huge around the world. Um, now, I guess the one thing that I think comes out of that is is that I think post the Queen's death and coming up to Charles's coronation, I think there's a lot of reflection going on about the royal family. And this now is where that debate is taking place. And I think that is quite a risk to the, to the monarchy. I don't overstate that. I think they've survived worse. But I think if this is the basis on which the monarchy is being discussed, then it doesn't really no, it's, bode well. It's, it's deeply uncomfortable. And it, it, for somebody like me who thinks the monarchy is one of the things that actually functions well and has a good part in British society and actually 
helped us through. Uh, somebody last night I was having dinner with them. They said they said conservative parties played their joker and played their wild card, which I thought was a good way of describing Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. But anyway, the monarchy seemed to, <laughs> the monarchy seemed to see us through that. What, uh, is, what is Sunak? What is Sunak? Yeah. Two of clubs. Two of clubs. Is that a cheap shot? That's quite, well, it's not that cheap. No. You've done cheaper, haven't you? I've, I've done cheaper. You've yeah, definitely, 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 done, definitely done cheaper. So a lot of the news is around Princess Diana and the funeral. Um, and that's something you were famously deeply involved in. I mean, any thoughts and any memories of that? Anything that you've re- considered about that period in your life? I do remember everybody sort of saying, I'm talking about everybody within the establishment, as it were, within the royal establishment, everybody saying things like, oh, it must be so terrible for the boys. Oh, God, the boys, right? And saying that. So then when you square that against Harry, for example, saying that his father told him sitting on the bed but didn't hug him, okay, which I think to a lot of people sounds pretty unfathomable. Uh, your mum's just been killed in a horrible car crash, it's going to be absolutely horrific. It's going to be life-changing in so many ways. So I sort of had a sense of there was a narrative around the boys at that time. I certainly do remember the pressures that they came under to walk behind the coffin. That, again, seems to be something that has sort of settled in him. The, the one bit I read, I can't remember if it was in the book or in a newspaper or in an interview, where he said that when they went, came down from Balmoral under that walkabout, when he, these people were touching me, notice how their wet, their hands were always wet, and it was because they'd been crying, and he wasn't crying because he felt he couldn't cry because he wasn't meant to cry. Well, that must have been bizarre to have yeah. everybody else crying when they didn't actually know his mother and I mean, shouting yeah. things about yeah. them. So I think I get why he's finds the thing really, really difficult. I also think the other thing I've reflected on: somebody sent me this thing about. I listened to for when we were driving back from Scotland. I listened to a Nicky Campbell phone in. This line emerged that he said he'd killed twenty five. Members of the yeah, Taliban. Yeah. And it was just soldier after soldier basically saying, This is terrible. You don't do this. It's just not good form, et cetera, et cetera. And people saying he'd done so well with his military record, the Invictus Games, all the stuff he did as a mental health. And that was all sort of gone for the birds. And so I was still listening to this and I then I tweeted something about it. I'd completely forgotten that the story about him killing the Taliban had been out before. Right. And the headlines yeah. in these same papers yeah. that are now yeah. absolutely trying yeah. to destroy him yeah. were all about Hero Harry. Yeah, yeah. Hero Harry killed the Taliban. Yeah. He's out there on the front line yeah. and he's really doing a man's job well, kind I, of and thing. And so that often happens, doesn't it, in, in uh, politics and public affairs, which is that you say something 10 years ago, you say it again and people treat it as though it's new. And you can, I mean, I found this in my own life. I could get scandals out of something that I'd said five, 10 years ago and nobody had noticed and suddenly it's all over the newspaper. But it's about the newspapers changing the prism. Back then, Harry was good. Now he's bad. And therefore, the same fact or the same line can be used in a totally it, negative way. It's also about ghostwriters, isn't it? I, I believe the person who did this is also the person who did the amazing Andre Agassi mm -hmm. autobiography, which I thought was incredible. And has written an extraordinary memoir himself right. as well. And which begins with Agassi doing these punishing sessions in this mm. three-quarter length court in Las Vegas with his crazy Persian father who can't afford a long enough yard forcing the tiny Agassi to hit a thousand balls a day and all this kind of stuff. But I guess a lot of this will be shaped by the ghostwriter's sense of how these books work and what he does when he comes out of those interviews. So mm. it's not surprising that the Agassiz book is about a traumatized childhood. And this book is also about a traumatized mm. childhood because mm. it's how the ghostwriter structures a book. Well, one of the questions we got this week was actually to both of us, whether, we, whether if we'd been offered the job as ghostwriter, whether we'd have... Have you ever ghostwritten a book? I haven't. I came very close once with... Um, Dave Brailsford, and I was also once approached by Roy Keane's then agent for various reasons, neither of them 
neither of them happened. I don't think I'd be a very good ghostwriter. You, you've hit the nail on the head of why it becomes difficult to be a ghostwriter because I don't know the guy, so I could be doing him a disservice, but you want to make this book as interesting as it possibly can be. Um, obviously, the raw material is going to be good, but Harry has talked about a lot of this stuff, and I wonder if some of these, the, the stuff that he's really being attacked from, attacked for now, whether it's stuff that maybe the publisher has been pushing for, the ghostwriter pushed for, and once you've sort of crossed that line into saying you've given somebody else permission to define the parameters of your life, I think it be- that becomes in its own way a difficult it's relationship just, to manage. It is very weird, isn't it? And then you get this sort of serialization of media stuff. I wonder how many people will read the book because they'll feel they've read all about it in the media. I mean, I'm, I'm actually worried about this. Like you, I've got a book coming out this year and I'm very reluctant to let it go out to serialization because I'm worried that what I hope is a, a book that people are going to read and enjoy will be picked up in a few newspaper headlines. There'll be a few sort of uh, I don't know, they'll pick out me being rude about Boris Johnson or rude about Liz Truss, and that'll be the story. And then everyone will think, well, I don't need to read the book. I get it. Mm. That's, a, that's an age-old um, discussion that goes on. I, I think it goes a lot less with publishers now because the newspapers are paying a lot less for serialization, which makes it easier to say no, I think. But the other thought I had through the whole week, listening to Harry and watching him do what he was doing, was I think I've said to you before that if ever there is a choice between money and reputation, always go for reputation. And... I think that if it is if they're really getting a hundred million quid, I think that's I think they've made the wrong choice. I think they've made the wrong choice. It's a, it's a must be a weird temptation. Now, domestic stuff, reform the NHS. You've been thinking a bit about Holland well, and the Dutch health service. So before we get onto Holland, yeah, Rory, yeah. I mean, as you know, I love it when distinguished people get in touch with our podcast and say interesting things that allow us to sort of take the debate this is, this, forward. This, this is Michael Jordan talking about the NHS. <laughs> so Ian Kennedy, Ian Kennedy. Professor Sir Ian yeah, Kennedy, uh, who I mentioned. Who you quoted last week, yeah. Right. Yeah. And he's the guy who, he was the first head of NICE, the Institute of NICE. And by the way, he says you were very bad about Frank Dobson because Frank Dobson brought in NICE, ah. which was a major reform of the health service. And, and so here gave, is gave a nice job to Sir Ian Kennedy. Oh, that is such a Tory thing to say, isn't it's, it? It's, it's sorry. It's uh, sorry. Such a Tory thing to say. It'll, anyway, it's good because it means it'll come back again. Rory clearly believes restructuring the NHS, which is usually code for introducing insurance-based model, is the answer. It would be worth asking him, I'm going to ask you, what is it about an insurance-based model that necessarily inherently leads to better health and more health care? It may work in Holland, but it certainly doesn't in the United States. What's wrong with making a wholehearted commitment financially and politically to our current model? And how is restructuring the NHS going to produce more healthcare professionals, repair buildings, provide equipment, let alone address the H in NHS and rescue the social this care system? This is from Serene Kennedy. Yeah. Gosh, how interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, obviously, the US system is not a universal healthcare system. So US is a very weird analogy. US is basically driven primarily as a private healthcare system. But France, which has an insurance-based system, Holland, which has an insurance-based system, many other European countries, what it does is it gets away from the big monolith of governments running everything. And obviously, this is maybe, without sounding too much like Michael Heseltine, where my more conservative side comes in, that universal insurance, with the government helping to support that, pay for that, allows variety of providers, allows people a bit more choice, allows a bit more competition. Actually, these were things that Alan Milburn mm. believed in. Trish he got in touch as well last week, by the way. Oh, yeah. Now, what did he make of it all? He, he said he thought you were talking a lot of sense about him. <laughs> <laughs> he said how marvellous he was. 
Um, but, but these are not things that would be unfamiliar to you back in your days in New Labour. The idea that it's possible to have good universal provision, mm. but to do it with a bit more choice and opportunity. Well, I did have a look at the Dutch system. Um, and it is interesting because it's funny, you, you mentioned that uh, Gary Lineker is in the room. Do you know what the name of the department for health in Holland is called? It's called the Ministry of Health, Welfare and Sport. Ah. Now, that is something I used to bang on about all the time, that I felt sport should either be in uh, health and or education. Not in culture. No, not in culture. It's like we treat sport as a kind of luxury. I went and looked at the Dutch Ministry of Health, Welfare and Sport. I looked at their website. Were you reading this in Dutch? I wish I could say I was reading in Dutch. I speak one sentence of Dutch. Go on then. It kept the fail off my doodles, like I That's very impressive. What which means mean? I've played my bagpipes too much. Okay, but it's the only Dutch I know. It is apparently my Dutch people say my accent is absolutely brilliant, but uh, that's the only sentence I know. But listen, listen to this. This is the this is the website of the Ministry of Health, Welfare, and Sport. It says the ministry is committed to improving the health and safety of life of all people in the Netherlands. The ministry aims for good quality, affordable, and sustainable health care and support. It promotes prevention and healthy nutrition and ensures first-rate sports facilities for all, from recreational athletes to professionals. The ministry pursues these goals together with its partners and, of course, with everyone in the Netherlands because we all want to be healthy, fit and resilient. It then goes through the three bits in short paragraphs, public health, welfare, sport. And it's sort of, you read it and you think, that is a health strategy. So even before you get to the funding... That approach with the focus on prevention and the focus on looking after our health, what we don't know. I believe the Dutch had a real crisis a few years ago, which is very, very similar to some of the challenges we had around the NHS and then had to redesign their system Correct. to go for more of an insurance system. 2006. So 1941 to 2006, they had this, if you were kind of not well off, a third of people who were well off had to take out private insurance. Yep. And the others had public health insurance. Yep. And then they brought this thing in 2006 on what they call this equalization of risk. Yep. And the deal is everybody has to have, there's mandatory insurance, which yep. you have to have. Yep. But the insurers, which are mainly not-for-profits, yep. they have to take you on on the same basis, regardless of whether you've got some sort of terrible gotcha. underlying condition. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. And it does seem to work because... Which they, is a big problem in the US. I mean, that's the horrifying thing in the US. You've got an underlying condition, you can't get insured. Exactly. Okay, yeah. But what's really interesting is that Holland has never been out of the top three healthcare systems in Europe since 2006. The, the one that beats it currently is? God, blimey, I don't know. Switzerland. Switzerland, mm. okay. You mentioned the, the Alan Milburn thing because one of the, the things I read about, they talk about, the Dutch talk about competition within a regulated framework. That's between the, the, the not-for-profits. And the other big difference with us, politicians are far removed from operative decisions on delivery of healthcare. Which is true with the Swedish prison service, which I'm a great admirer of. When I was trying to persuade the head of the Swedish prison service to become head of the British prison service, one of the things he pointed out to me is that Swedish politicians cannot get involved at all in operational decisions in Swedish prisons. That is left to him. He gets on with that. And that was his requirement. And I thought that was great. Mm. Bring him on, give him that. Power, but the British system really balked at that. And, and you can see why, because our voters want us to have operational control. My voters in Cumbria would not be satisfied if the Cumberland Infirmary was killing people with me saying, hey, I don't have any operational control about that. That's all dealt with by the chief executive of NHS England. Do you think that's why the public aren't quite buying the government every time they go out and say this is an independent pay review body? Right, right. If, well, I think, the, I think 
in Britain, we expect our elected politicians to be able to influence operation. It was the same with, um, actually had this over flooding and of prisons. So Michael Howard, when he was running, was Home Secretary, very much set up a system where the head of the prison service was supposed to go on radio and television and defend a, a riot. Uh, same with flooding. I think the, the, the scandal that Chris Smith got into with mm. flooding was about him trying to say, the government trying to say flooding is a decision for the environment agency, not a decision for the minister. But definitely when I was a, a minister, I did the reverse. I always felt I had to be in the operational detail because in the end I was accountable. Mm. And you're the guys to stand up in parliament and answer questions. Yeah. From, and from it's not good enough really saying to someone when they're flooded, not my problem. This is mm. dealt with by somebody mm. else. Mm. So anyway, that, that's what, what did you make of the, um, did you have time to read or see the two speeches by the main party leaders? Uh, we talked a little bit last week about their New Year's messages. The speeches were a bit more detailed. Yeah. Did you follow them much? Did not. No, tell us about them. Tell us, can you give us your unbiased view of Keir Sama's performance? Uh, well, I'll start with Sunak. Sunak <laughs> delivered these five pledges, which rang a which, bell. Just, just to remind people, so that he's going he's gonna to re- halve inflation. Which is the Bank of England gonna forecast. Ge- generate growth. Which going to reduce debt. It's going to cut NHS waiting lists and he's going to stop small boats. Were those well, the five? They were the five, although actually when you read the small print, Rory, he said he's going to pass laws to stop the boats. Do you think that will be enough to get him out of trouble? No, I don't. Yeah. I actually don't think it met the scale of the challenge that the country's facing. I thought Keir Starmer actually made a good speech, which he, for me, spoilt by this rather gimmicky line about having what he called the take-back control bill. I'm all in favour of devolving more power to cities. Yeah, let's just give this. This is the guy that voted Remain. And then when I was in the House of Commons, I was trying to push a customs union, thought the customs union was too hard a Brexit and wanted to go full single market, flirting with second referendum. And now he's on take back control. He's on take back control in a completely different context. And therein, for me, lies the problem. As Ronald Reagan used to say, if you're explaining, you're losing. He had to. So, so and he, actually, what I think was, a, was a, one of his better speeches without that line. Yeah. But that line then became what people focused on in the media. Because that was the line that won the Brexit campaign in 2016 for listeners who may have forgotten the horrible I don't thing. That, I don't think they've forgotten that. Really. <laughs> I, th- I think, I th- I think uh, we don't need to loop back on that one too often. I, but I, I, I do think that um, it was a more rounded argument than he's made before. The whole thing about devolution of power was good. But I think to, to use a slogan for what was a very tactical political reason and a slogan to my mind that is becoming more discredited the longer we go on. Obviously, we're in London, and I've been seeing some of my uh, colleagues, um, including some senior serving politicians. And I've got quite an interesting, sympathetic insight into Rishi Sunak from them. They find him obviously much, much better than Liz Truss and Boris Johnson. The civil servants seem to like him more. And for all his flaws, I think the positive spin on him at the moment is that he works incredibly hard does his homework, reads his briefs, gets up early in the morning, cares deeply, obviously doesn't need to do the job you know, financially. He's, he's doing it because he's fascinated by these issues. And they also say he's quite good at delegating, quite good at trusting his ministers. So mm. there we are. We are often knocking Rishi Sunak. Okay. As you were saying that, there was a, something Bill Clinton once said that popped into my head when Tony was going through a very bad time and Clinton was over. Clinton was out of office by now. And Tony sent me down to the Ritz, I think it was, and we had this chat. And I was saying, Tony's, you know, got, we've got this problem, got that problem, da 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 went through it all, and he sometimes feels he's not understood and getting the record out, et cetera, et cetera. And Clinton said, I sometimes think that Tony thinks that you should get a blue ribbon for the job. The job is the blue ribbon. That's what he said. So what you just said about Sunak 
is the absolute minimum that you have to do to be committed, to do the job, to focus on the detail, to delegate. That is the basic. And what I think he's struggling to do is do anything much beyond that. And I accept where I will give him some sympathy, he's got a very difficult set of circumstances, economically, socially, politically. But I don't think if that's the best his friends are giving you when you're on, over for a brief visit to London, Rory, I'm not too worried. Well, let's, let's take a little break on this and, and come back after the break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Rest is Politics is sponsored by The New European. And if you want to do something positive about the state of our wretched media, you can subscribe to this award-winning newspaper, of which, by the way, Declaration of Interest, I am editor-at-large. It is a great antidote to corrosive nationalism and the perfect way to keep you feeling connected to what's going on in continental Europe. And it is indeed, Asa, but as I often say when we're promoting The New European, it's also got a lovely, lovely culture section. And does these great profiles. I think I talked about this profile on Sevi Ballesteros in the past. And if you're listening recently, you remember I offered a free book of the new European's fabulous covers to all new subscribers before Christmas. Glad to say, Rory, such is our reach. It was their best ever month for new subscribers. And they've decided to extend the offer 
for a limited period. And we had a look at it, didn't we, in the Royal Albert Hall? Yeah. They were chuckling away at the covers, almost late on the stage at the Royal Albert Hall? Almost, almost late. Anyway, you can subscribe for just £1 a week, or if you prefer to get the actual newspaper delivered to your door, £2 a week, and they'll send you a copy of their Bloody Idiots book. That's the title, by the way. I think it might have something to do with the Tories. Worth £15 for nothing. These are the best prices you'll get anywhere for a new European subscription, so do something positive about the media. Sign up today, www.neweuropean.co.uk slash trip. Welcome back to The Rest of Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Ernest Campbell. So, Brazil. Brazil. Incredible, right? Mind listeners, uh, essentially storming of three of the major institutions in Brazil by enraged supporters of Bolsonaro, military and police standing back and not really doing much to prevent them. Bolsonaro at the time in Florida. Lula, I think, was out of the country. He was in Sao Paulo. So it's terrifying, I think, what almost happened there and seemed to be taken straight from the January 6th playbook. And a, a reminder of the fact, although we often talk in the pod about how the fight against populism seems mildly to be going in uh, a positive direction with Joe Biden's election and Boris Johnson's defenestration, um, we can see populism fighting back all over the world and nowhere more starkly than in Brazil. Mm. Well, you've plugged the book that you're writing. In the book that I'm writing, I have the line that it is perhaps easier to defeat a populist than it is to defeat populism. Ah. And I think what you've seen with Bolsonaro is, I, I, I think it's been quite surprising that Bolsonaro, I mean, okay, he hasn't conceded defeat. He didn't attend the handover of power, but he hasn't been openly stirring in the way that I think people thought that he would. Now, whether there's been a lot going on under the radar, I don't know. But I think it is, I think it is genuinely terrifying because I think what you're seeing is this is the consequence of populism because part of the appeal of populism is to attack the institutions of power. And Bolsonaro, what was interesting about January the 6th, the Trump insurrection, that was about one part of government. That was about capital, Congress. Here, they were attacking all three simultaneously, the parliament, the law, and the presidential headquarters, if you like, so that all three bits of the power structure were, were under siege. And a lot of it, again, we're back to the thing about fake news, disinformation, a lot of it based on myths, lies, disinformation circulating on private and sometimes public networks. And we talk, when we talked about the Brazilian elections, if you remember, the week before, we talked about the fact that the CIA had been down there trying to mm. say to Bolsonaro's people, mm. you must concede mm. straight away because mm. we're worried. And then I think there's people who take their eye off the ball a bit because it didn't happen immediately. And for this suddenly to happen almost to the day on the anniversary of the, the American riot at the Capitol, I think just reminds you that this, this could spread. This could spread. It's also a reminder, isn't it, that once you get an extremist movement going, you can create a vicious circle. And I think this was something we saw in a very small way over Brexit, which is that as the different camps dug in second referendum against hard Brexiteers, things intensify, divide, polarize mm. more. Mm. And all the way through Latin America, whether it's on the left or the right, you get this sense of incredibly divided societies that the, the right tend to perceive the left-wing governments as though that they're crazy communist Stalinist governments, and the left perceive the right-wing governments as though they're neo-fascist dictatorships. And there is not a centre ground, or there doesn't no. feel like there's a centre ground. It's been interesting, though, how I think almost without exception, the main leaders of all the other Latin American countries have come out 
basically on the side of democracy and on the side of, yeah. of Lula. Yeah. Um, even those who yeah, yeah, disagree yeah, with him yeah, profoundly yeah, yeah. on, on yeah. His, his political views. Yeah. But I, look, I, I think that it signals that, as you say, we, we ended the year quite optimistic because yeah. Bolsonaro had lost, because Macron yeah. had won, yeah. because Schultz yeah. was there, uh, because Johnson had gone, because Trump had gone, etc. But, you know, if you look at what happened in, in Congress with the, yep. you, you yep. mentioned last yep. week yep. about the speakership, yep. and I bet even when you were talking about that, you didn't imagine it was going to take no. him 15 votes. That's unbelievable. And the sort of concessions he's had to make to crazy people who have now got real power. Um, I read a wonderful piece yesterday on that salon, the American site. Um, I can't remember the name of the woman who wrote it, but it was basically saying, this is as good as it's going to get. It's now going to get worse because these people have been given a taste of real power. And they're now going to abuse it. And I, I, you know, I fear for the worst on that. And then you wanted to bring us to the Czech Republic. Well, I think the Czech Republic is really interesting because there's an election this weekend. Um, and Babis, who was prime minister, mm-hmm. and he's one of the, the, I think there are nine candidates. And was narrowly defeated. It was like 23% very, very to 23%. Close. But they got rid of him. Billionaire, friend of Trump, populist, booted out very unusually because all the opposition parties cobbled together and knocked him out of Parliament and being Prime Minister, but now running to be President. And, and there's three of them. There's him, I scribbled their names down. There's, there's him who's the kind of populist Trump Erdogan type figure. Peter Pavel, ex-army, and a, and a woman who's in her 40s, Danuza Nerudova, who's the kind of young, fresh face. But essentially, it's a populist against two kind of seemingly quite reasonable people. But they're all in the 20s and 30s. And the, the and the the electoral system is almost identical to the French. Yeah, you have to get fifty yeah. percent, and so it is almost inevitably going to lead yep. to a runoff. If Babis wins, then Putin's happy. Yeah, this guy is very close to, to Viktor Orbán. Yeah, uh, it's it's also going to be he, he, he's somebody who I think if he comes back, having been through that process you you've described, and then they, they, he had this case against him for corruption, which he's now won. Nice timing yep. has to be said. Yeah. So if he comes back, I think that is yet another really quite difficult moment for the Euro- European Union. And, and final thing before, before we close, I want to remind people of, because it, it hasn't been much in the media, um, is Myanmar. So you, you'll remember in February of last year, Aung San Suu Kyi's government was toppled by the Burmese military. She won credible victory in the parliamentary elections. She got nearly 80% of the seats and the military responded because they were at their very, very weakest by basically a coup d'etat and initially going after on the grounds that she'd owned a walkie-talkie mm. and that this was an imprisonable offence. And they've, they've just slapped another sentence on her this week. Sentence, so 27 years on her and she's 77 years old. So if that held, she's never, never coming out of jail. But Myanmar is now in the most horrifying situation. Mm. 1.4 million people displaced. Half the country now in the hands of rebel groups people printing weapons, using 3D printing to print weapons to attack the military. Every university in the country closed, the economy collapsing. And this has been going on now for almost two years. Mm. We pride ourselves on talking about things that aren't necessarily getting that much attention in the, in the media. If you defined what the, what the hunter have done in the last couple of years and just set out the facts of who's been killed, who's been detained, the, the sham elections that are coming, and you set it against Putin... You know, they're in the same ballpark. 100%. And yet nobody's really talking about it at all. Extraordinary. 2,500 people killed, 16,000 people detained. Horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. And and I think because this is the Restless Politics podcast, we talk a lot about leadership. It it casts a question around Aung San Suu Kyi, who I, I knew 
and I, I'd go to visit her in Myanmar. And I remember sitting with her, trying to get her to come out and condemn what the Burmese military were doing to the Rohingya, which she, she, was, she, couldn't which do she, she wouldn't do. Mm. And what she said to me was, my position is much more fragile than you realize. Mm. To be much more careful criticizing the military than you realize. Mm. And at the time, I thought this was disingenuous, that actually she should be taking more risks, she should be challenging the military. Of course, she will feel in the sense that she was vindicated mm. and that we didn't understand. No, but also she, the reason that she made the progress that she did was because she was able to build this network of international support. But there's very little sign of it at the moment. And you had the UN rapporteur, Tom Andrews, last week. He said, we're now witnessing systematic gross human rights violations, which amount to war crimes and crimes against humanity daily against the people of Myanmar. It's not even on the news. And the Chinese and Russians are, of course, vetoing any action in the well, Security they Council. They didn't veto, they abstained, which I thought was interesting. But yeah. it's, it means that the UN can do something. I thought it was actually surprising they didn't use they the veto. They didn't do the full veto, yeah. The, the, the general, I don't know how you pronounce him, Min Aung Hlaing, he listed the countries that were on his side this week. China, Thailand, Laos, Bangladesh. Bangladesh has got a million Rohingya refugees. And the, the other countries are sending back refugees. He was a man who controls two huge business conglomerates as well as being the head of the military. And when he was in officer training school, he was known by his friends as Cat Feces. And Cat Poo is apparently not a polite name if you're Burmese. I think even if you're British, I think Cat Feces is probably... It's not, not, a, it's not, not very not, nice. Not, not a good thing. No, no, no. 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 Well, thank, thank you very much, Alistair, and look forward to speaking soon. See you soon.